Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a new podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this episode, Jonathan interviews his long friend Jared McKenna. Jared is an Australian pastor and justice activist, and in this conversation, they discuss following the gospel and following our nonviolent Messiah, and how this can lead us to build communities and spaces of love and grace and justice and peace. Enjoy. Well, I'm here in New Mexico with one of my best mates in the world, Jared McKenna. I'm so happy that you're here, Jared. I'm so happy that I'm here. We've had an amazing couple of days. I love you, bro. I love you more. Like no, no, I love you more. Uh, of all the people, I want to be in a cheap motel. With. <laughs> we are in a straight up cheap motel. I'm so concerned about that stain on the roof and yeah. what that might might be. That and like, but people would think that anything like that that we might say might sound like sexual, but like in New Mexico, like where there's just so much radiation happening. Like we we don't know things could be nuclear. You that sexual. <laughs> <laughs> a stain on the roof. You <laughs> if you're especially robust. <laughs> <laughs> There are a couple of acrobats staying here. It's, it's um, it's nearly it's nearly one a.m. and we we've been hanging out with uh, a Nobel Peace Prize nominee. Yes. all day that Desmond Tutu, the only person Desmond Tutu ever nominated, and uh, clearly in the shadow of that experience, Jono was coming up with comments. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And this is our second podcast. This is our second podcast. This is round two. Yeah, it is. And you were so eloquent and uh, like all... um, And now I'm incoherent. Holy rollery and it was... um, uh, Yeah, so I'm sorry we spent all of that on uh, All the good energy, that's right. (laughs) Now now we just sound like we're at the Toronto Blessing. We do sound a lot like that. Maybe it would... It it might be worth a bit though saying what... even saying for you what this time has meant for us to be here with Father John. Okay, I'm going to sit up. I'm going to sit up to do this. Okay. Because <clears throat> that, that's how much I care about you listeners. Appreciate that. I know they appreciate you sitting up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Podcasts are a wonderful visual medium, Indeed. Jared. <laughs> it's like a dream. Mm. I mean, it, it's so archetypal. Like, uh, I mean, for me, I'm on the other side of the world. But we're in New Mexico, which mm. is... Uh, you know, we were where Thomas Merton um, had a drink just down the road yeah. and went to dinner. And there's this uh, um, woman working in the restaurant who is talking about a body that was buried under the floorbeds like 400 years ago and that um, uh, a lot of the staff had seen her. I mean, that's all very... New Mexico, you know yes, what I mean? Yes, in Santa Fe in particular. It's a place that, you know, um, UFO um, enthusiasts are attracted mm-hmm. to and, and all the rest. And as John Deere so clearly said, um, the unidentified flying objects, uh, 
the military activity that since the 1940s, drones have been something that's been tested mm -hmm. in this place. And the scary thing about it is not um, uh, the undead walking around, it's those who are alive who are living like they're dead because the reality of the, the nuclear nuclear um, industry here yes. and uh, the reality that um, this is where the end of the world probably will start and, mm. unless we actually move in towards the trajectory of um, what we see revealed in Christ Jesus. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's, you know, it's kind of heavy stuff. It and is heavy. More like a dream. We've got John Deere, who, who is this incredibly sweet warrior of nonviolence. Mm -hmm. Like he, he is this fascinating, um, uh, complex yet, um, single-minded and open-hearted mm -hmm. man who has dedicated his life after this phenomenal experience, which he talked to us in his little hermitage overlooking the mountain ranges of, um, wanting to give his life to God and traveling to, um, uh, the Sea of Galilee and sitting mm. in the chapel of um, the Beatitudes and asking God for a sign uh, about does he dedicate his life to the Beatitudes and these F-16 planes just drop out of the sky, mm. sonic boom and he ducks um, out of fear as they uh, fly on to bomb Lebanon and mm. it's like here's the Beatitudes, here are the bombs that are falling and here's us sitting in this hermitage with this great... I mean, you know, there, there are spiritual um, teachers that people respect and yeah. help us find equilibrium and balance and health and integration. Sure. And then there are people like John Deere, the mm. kind of prophets that once we move past being healthy, we can actually think about the health of the planet yeah. and our society and the world and where we're all going and, and risk all our wellness, hmm. not for some unhealthy, unhinged activism, but for lives of such radical love that people scratch their head and think Jesus must be raised from the grave if you're hmm. going to love like that. That's John Deere. So yeah. how's that for a summary? Man, that's a, great, that's a great summary. And you used a word that, of course, is a pivotal word for you, but I would love to hear you define for our listeners, what is nonviolence to you? There's so many different ways to do that and to do it at, at one in the morning. Um, Nonviolence is that which raised Jesus from the grave. Hmm. Nonviolence is that force when all coercion is given up on, that there is um, a power that is found in powerlessness that is actually more powerful than death. Nonviolence is a reality that we see on the cross when we look at it through the resurrection and realize that the ascension isn't about some like magical lift that Jesus has gone somewhere else, but now Jesus is found everywhere and that power is available to us if we, if we just pay attention enough that it is actually there. Hmm. Um, Nonviolence is that power that won't save our life, but we must lose our life to actually engage it. Um, nonviolence is a mystery and to talk of nonviolence and it's almost appropriate in terms of like apophatic Christian spirituality that it starts with a non it, it is it, it is a mystery to approach that we don't have languages for but what we're talking about 
is love. What we're talking about is that which we see in the life of Jesus. It, it, it is what that woman feels when she grabs Jesus' garment. It, it mm. is what the, happens to the leper as he is included. It is what the mm. demoniac experiences as he returns to his right mind. It is what Peter is what when he's called, what Matthew hears when he's called. It, it is what Mary Magdalene experiences when she, like this... Mm. Um, Nonviolence is a way of not talking about the absence of violence, but the healing presence of God that the prophets promise will flood the earth like the waters cover the seas. Nonviolence is a, a vision for um, where all of reality will ultimately head that's revealed to us in Jesus who picks up everything that Isaiah has painted with and those colours drip from him with every interaction in every scene of a world that we thought our options were either black or white Mm. or grey. And if we talk about nonviolence in any other way that um, doesn't start to enter into a mysticism of love in action Mm. um, that is falling in love with the divine that first loved us and we see that revealed in this crucified one who comes to us with his scars promising that our scars can speak of healing like his does where we've fallen into mere ideology or um, political strategy or self-help or self-improvement and have, have missed the 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 dare and the demand of our true dignity as children of God, a God whose sun rises on the just and unjust and rain falls on the righteous and unrighteous and loves in those kind of crazy ways that um, will turn our world upside down. Hmm. That's the kind of thing we're starting to scratch at when we talk about nonviolence. So there's a substance and weight to nonviolence, not not just the absence of violence. It's a bigger idea. It is certainly not less than that, but it's a, a lot more than that. Like mm. when, when King uh, in Mississippi talks about um, we don't have battens, but we do have a power. We don't mm. have tear gas, but we do have a power. It's a power that is as old as the hills mm. and as new as the techniques of Gandhi. It's a power that we see at Calvary. It is the power that is ours in the resurrection. And it does involve laying down our swords and taking up our cross. But it's not just laying down our swords. And it is not just knowing that that we will face our own finality and finitude, but that God's not finished, that Mm. love will have the last word. And um, though no one gets out alive, Jono, that... Mm. Life does and will, and will have the last word, and it's living into that future that approaches us. Uh, the preacher's name is grace. Hmm. That grace isn't something that merely um, pardons, that it empowers for a life of the kind of crazy love that we see in the saints, um, the, that we experience uh, as lovers, and that we know in prayer. Like hmm. nonviolence, if, if nonviolence isn't that it'll 
become a cold technique and tactic mm. uh, instead of something that brings us into worship and um, uh, like if it doesn't make us drop to our knees and throw our hands up um, in awe and wonder I wonder if we're even starting to talk about nonviolence yet mm. is it necessary to embrace nonviolence to be a follower of Jesus it depends what we mean by follower of Jesus mm. uh, I don't think Jared should be defining what follower of Jesus is. I think Jesus should be. And Jesus makes it pretty clear that, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Hmm. Um, there are 15 commandments, not suggestions, uh, not you know, uh, high ideals, but like here are things to obey that are in the Sermon on the Mount, which aren't optional extras. Hmm. And if, if following Jesus means... Those who hear these words of mine and put them into practice are like a wise person who built their house upon a rock. The rock that Jesus holds up is these 15 teachings, which are really practical Hmm. and which, if you're wondering what it looks like in a life worked out, well, that's the rest of Matthew's gospel. And so when you get to the Great Commission and he's like, all authority in heaven and earth has not been given to a book uh, nor to an organization or an institution or a particular pastor or a priest, but to me. Hmm. And if we're going to take seriously that all authority is given to Jesus, therefore, go make disciples, not converts, not believers, but people who follow Jesus, who put his teachings into practice. And if you didn't think it was implied there, he goes on to make it explicit, baptizing them in the Trinitarian reality of God's Um, self-emptying, canonic love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Mm. and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And we're like, oh, if only Matthew had summed that up, I don't know, in three chapters in ways that some scholars think that were written so people could memorize Mm. what these teachings were before baptism at Easter. Well, that is what Matthew 5 through 7 is. And surely I will be with you to the end of the age. So then we've got our identity in baptism. We've got God's presence in this mission. And we've got the promise of God's gracious future, which is coming towards us and we're to participate in. Can we be nonviolent without following Jesus? I'm not sure. That's an interesting question. Mm. Can we follow Jesus without being nonviolent? If Jesus gets to define it, According to the Great Commission, it's a huge omission. You see what I did there? This is what happens when preachers talk past <laughs> one o'clock. <It's> <laughs> yes. This is dangerous. But the omission, if we leave nonviolence out, we leave the cross out. Yeah. We leave the foolishness of the gospel out hmm. because everybody wants a Messiah. Mm-hmm. It, there, there will be comic book hero movies made this year about messiah type figures but Mm. what no one wants what the stumbling block is what the foolishness is is a non-violent messiah who saves through this suffering love when did you when did you first glimpse the gospel in this way or maybe it's better to ask jesus in this way like when when were you first captured by this particular vision of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When did that get a hold of you? For the first time. Yeah, maybe it's wrong to universalize my own experience, um, but don't we all know? 
Sure. But I know, but maybe we just like <laughs> need to name that out up front that, um, like, I think for a lot of people, it's actually going, oh, that which I experienced of love, mm. that God loved me and that I wanted in on that. We can all name certain experiences in our life where that grows and that there is widening concentric circles mm-hmm. of that compassion and, and holy mercy that start to just engorge and take over what we thought mm. was our life and finding that actually it was never ours and mm. the only proper response is to, um, to lay it down and give it back and, and then waste it on behalf of the poor and hurting and those with their backs against the wall as um them will say and um so i can name any number of experiences through my life starting like as a kid apparently mum and dad said that i wouldn't go to bed unless they took me outside and i could say nine night moon nine night stars wow and um my experience of the night sky, particularly like being here in New Mexico, like um, what you can see of the Milky Way. John Deere was talking last night of sometimes the Milky Way from his hermitage, so isolated from light pollution, it almost looks pink mm. through the centre. Mm. I think any genuine experience of awe and wonder brings us to a sense of how small we are how vast everything is Mm. and yet our place in that and that there's um and and read through the life of christ that experience is flooded with compassion Mm. and mercy and love so those early experiences of um the stars but being having parents that loved me well Mm. i mean what an important gift to give thanks for and and then be that for for others that haven't had that and um, mm. uh, your kids' friends who haven't had that and um, but personal experience like uh, being 12 years old and looking out at my window and starting to pray for the first time and being like God if you if you're there I, I need you mm. those kind of experiences were hugely shaping looking up a, <laughs> over a bowl of nachos in a um in a food court in in Wembley in Perth in Western Australia and saying to my parents at what 13 years old that I want to follow Jesus and bursting into tears and mm. then my parents responding in tears and my sister responding in tears and people looking around like somebody had died and mm. somebody had that, mm. that sense of me that wasn't connected and living out of that sense of wonder that I am loved and I am a child of God that was dying and would do the next morning around the family swimming pool as people gathered before church to sing, I've decided to follow Jesus and my dad baptised me in the family. Mm. I mean, there's any number of places I can start to plot in my life of um, early experiments in following Jesus after that and mm. transforming experiences of being in solidarity with um the only openly gay kid in my school as he um, was pelted with um, sausage rolls and uh, uh, hot meat pies um, while throwing up his guts at a party Mm. about 11 o'clock at night and being called 
like the most unspeakable homophobic um, things and uh, feeling so strong that the Holy Spirit has called me not just to go down and minister to him in terms of getting water into him and getting bread into him to soak up some of the alcohol which he was trying to drown his pain in because of the homophobia that he was swimming in. Um, but being called to put my arm around him and stand w- with him in that situation and then going through being pelted by it and um, being called those same things and all the rest because Jesus is found there amongst those who are hurting and scapegoat. Like their early experience, that story we're talking about with John Deere about like being mugged. Yeah. And so we can all plot little things, but I think we're all rediscovering and coming home to a truth that, that we do know mm. that if God is anything like Jesus, even an approximation of what we see in Jesus, that God is this power of nonviolent love. Mm. And it's the only thing that transforms. Mm. That kind of love is the only thing that transforms. And I listen to testimony after testimony after testimony. And if you keep scratching the surface, what people are coming home to find is that what we see in Jesus is what we get in God. Hmm. And that will turn your life upside down where you have to start to live like that. Because there's this strange irony that the only way that we receive God's love is if we refuse to not be participants in living that same yeah. love. Yeah. And that's a, that's, a, um, that's a dare, that's an adventure, that's um, uh, a, a challenge, but it's, it's also the only way to waste your life. Hmm. Like it's, the, it's the only good way to this short amount of time and it's mm. so brief and it's so short yeah. and it's, it's over so quickly yeah. and our, our life is like grass and the whole thing is like vapour and to spend it on behalf of the poor and, mm. and to spend it on behalf of those who are hurting and um, to get caught up in the kind of way that God hurts for the world and to share in that lament and to share mm. in those tears and to do it with the kind of love that leaves behind bitterness and opens up to some mm. beautiful future that Jesus comes walking towards us with. Mm. That's what we're talking about when we talk about that God is nonviolent. So for somebody who, as an activist and someone who's worked with refugees and been, of course, influenced by people like King and Gandhi and Father John Deere, when that sort of what was for you as, as you sort of overtly discovered that kind of teaching around nonviolence, was there an essential continuity with that and what you sort of intuitively understood about Jesus before was, or was at first there a kind of discontinuity, you know, like was that, yeah. what was it like to first to, to, to hear that kind of, that, that kind of teaching expressly for the first time? I'm very fortunate, and I realize it when I'm in settings like the U.S., that my default understanding of Christianity is that I grew up in a home where Dr. King was talked about and was mm. a hero. He was so important to my mum's conversion. Mm. Um, uh, Can you say a bit about your mum's conversion? Uh, yeah. I mean, um, Uncle Vincent Harding, who was he, he literally wrote the draft of Martin Luther King's Beyond Vietnam speech. Martin Luther King invited him... Um, to, to move next door. He was a, a, a black Mennonite historian who was important. I told him this story and he just thought it was the best thing 
ever. But my mum was maybe 12 or 13 years old um, growing up in uh, a family where um, uh, they experienced anti-Semitism, but um, Mm. there was no faith practice. Um, My mum was uh, occasionally taken along to a Sunday school because it's what other kids in the area uh, experienced. And my mum saw a news report about Birmingham in 63 Mm. and the fire hoses being turned on these kids. And she remembers seeing this eloquent, intelligent, brilliant person speaking on TV and it said underneath Martin Luther King and the caption was Baptist minister. Mm. And mum was like, Baptist likes in Swan Hill when we go to get the groceries. So um, they lived in this little town where you could, corner store would have bread, it would have Mm. milk, it would have newspapers. But if you were going to get groceries for the week, when my mum went with her mum to do that, they had to go into Swan Hill and the first building you passed at the time as you went into Swan Hill was the Baptist church. Mm. And so my mum passed that once a week and would think about that man on TV and those powerful scenes. And so um, when she was 16, 17, she rocked up there, heard an altar call, walked forward. And so uh, Martin Luther King led my (laughs) mum on the other side of the world to Mm. Christ. Like, it's it's a... um, So... Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that um, I, I grew up in a setting where Christ's teaching on turning the other cheek and loving your enemies and um, putting your sword away was taken seriously mm. and uh, I was actually naive enough to think that this is what all Christians actually thought mm. um, and I, I remember being after coming to Christ and I'm like maybe 14 years old and I'm in a compulsory history class at my school on Reformation European history and learning about the Reformation and going, oh my goodness, this is all horrible. Lutherans killing Catholics, Catholics killing Calvinists, uh, Calvinists killing Mm. Lutherans, like all all this um, stuff going on and what they all shared in common was they were all killing these Anabaptists. And these people who were radically committed to the Sermon on the Mount as a way mm. of life. And I was like, oh, they're, they're my peeps. They're, they're, they're my... So for me, those things were, were key at the outset of my faith. But in, in terms of it moving from that tenderness of the experience of God's love for me and then that transitioning to... This isn't just for changing people's lives, but mm. this can change society. Um, and that, um, that actually often leads to um, persecution and mm. people saying all kinds of false things about you. And uh, they, were, they were early experiments for me of um, uh, you know, risking popularity to, to love those that others considered unlovable and... I just I didn't have a youth group. My parents were in a house church at the time, and I just thought that's what everybody did. Mm. Like, um, it, it it wasn't that I wasn't a literalist. It's just that I was reading the Gospels and James' epistle and <laughs> like Paul's prison letters, and these were things that were were forming my faith. And mm. so, in James' epistle, where it says, um, 
uh, uh, greet one another. I thought I literally had to say hello to everyone <laughs> and um, terrified at a like private boys' school where you <laughs> don't speak to the higher levels and yet God's asked me to greet everyone. And so I, I became known as the G'day Kid because <laughs> I would actually speak to the kids in older years and with my bag, walking through the lockers side by side with these tall like year 11 and 12 was about to finish high school and go into university in the workforce. And here's me in my first year of high school. G'day, g'day, g'day. And those, and I think, you know, as ridiculous as that is, I think God kind of honors those little bits of obedience where we try and get caught up in God's love and Mm. those things form us. Mm. I'd love for you to say a bit about, I mean, given the fact that God has been openly such a significant part of your reality for such a long time and certainly all of your adult life. And then, you know, in the context of ministry and activism, I mean, one of the things that has one of the great gifts of our friendship is that, you know, I feel like we were both able to be there for each other through you know, the darkest season of our lives. And I'm curious, like, um, as a person who always had not, um, not naivete in a bad way, but coming in with all this vigor and zeal for Christ that shaped you and being on that trajectory for, um, you know, for such a long time, what was it like for you in the context of your ministry and your activism to sort of, to hit that kind of season, what did you learn? What did you come to see about God differently from, from experiencing a bit of a personal crisis in the midst of, 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 of a devout life mm. that, that always was really had been, the trajectory had been about following Jesus. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'd ever use the word, about hmm. um, determined maybe like hmm. um, uh, what was it like um, I mean it was hell like it, it was it was horrific uh, I think I'm still I'm still out whether it was the worst season or the second worst season hmm. so the, there are other experiences for me, um, that, uh, that I'm, I'm thankful for the ways and the people that are surrounded by and that grace was able to get to me. Mm. because um, I think the grace is always there. Yeah. Um, but w- whether we put ourselves in a place where it's able to get at us and work mm-hmm. on us. And those decisions when I was um, uh, 18, 19, um, and uh, it crushed so many. So do I do that? Do I tell that bit? and Totally up to whatever yeah, you feel comfortable um, with. Uh, so I... 
I exposed that. Um, uh, so I, I shared that it was a, a little house church. Mm-hmm. Um, that little house church um, filled with us four kids grew into a youth group of nearly 150 kids mm-hmm. with 80, 90 being picked up every Sunday morning by a fleet of combi vans to be brought to church because only eight of the kids in the whole youth group had Christian parents. Mm -hmm. And it was just us sharing how God loves us and loves you. And our mates started hanging out with our parents in their house church where there's no band, there's no smoke machine, there's no, like, um, there's just people who are seeking to love well. And so that grew into, like, a... Um, a church of mm. like over 200 people and the pastor in the church um, it turned out had sexually abused a bunch of us and um, I exposed that uh, I took that to the police and people destroyed computer evidence of the abuse helped him skip the country lied to police sold his home, sold his car and helped him get set up elsewhere in mm. the world. And part of this season recently for me has included, but by no means was the most, it, it was just kind of like, here's another layer on top of mm. all the other heavy things. Cause, um, uh, like yourself, my, my marriage ended and, yeah. um, uh, but one of the layers is that, um, he was caught and there's over 30 victims and, um, I was <sighs> run by the American, um, federal police who would wanted me to come and testify against him, um, and work through working towards doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he ended up taking a plea bargain at the last minute, two weeks before I'm supposed to fly to the U S to testify against him. And instead of looking for the rest of his life in jail, he's got seven years mm. and then we'll be on one of these um, pedophile protection lists or mm. uh, watch lists or whatever um, but that was an incredibly traumatic experience at 18 years old then mm. my best friend died of a uh, drug overdose um, that community that was so significant and um, you know we saw revival like yeah. in, in our um, schools and um, and then so many of my mates who I baptised where we used to go surfing um, walked away from it all. Um, mm. Family members who um, were like, "I love Jesus, but church is bullshit." Mm-hmm. Um, and you know how often I swear, like, but that, that's that's how um, yeah they, they said, and understandable. But I made decisions at that time. Thankfully, that you can't really take responsibility for because it doesn't really give glory to it. Like it, I'm just thankful. I don't know how it happened that I was in a place where I could go. I still want to trust with what I don't know. Hmm. And I, I don't have a theology to fit all of this, but I'm happy to leave my theology behind Jesus. If hmm. you're going to be with me through all of this and I'll allow my theology to catch up. Hmm. Um, if you can let me be everything I'm feeling at the moment Mm. and I don't have to change all of that and the gift of the Psalms still the gift of Mm. the Psalms like daily for me in in being able to um, (laughs) you just heard me swear Uh, the only other place where I I, I really swear is actually in prayer (laughs) I know how weird that and like uh, not there's anything wrong with like you know whatever but um, uh, 
after being through all of that at that stage of my life when everything fell apart uh, again mm. and the feeling of you know, I didn't do anything wrong and how's this all happen and how like um, I've worked too hard to not become bitter and cynical and mm. hard hearted then I can't let the enemy have me now mm. like there, there is there is too much work to do there is like and I look at the refugees that I live with who mm. like who are literally that word means people seeking safety mm-hmm. who have fled these war zones what they've been through and yet there is such incredible hope and joy for them mm. and they're able to um, there is a responsibility for me to deal with my stuff in such a way that I can still put myself in the place where I can receive God's grace mm. and let that fly out and that's all I got Jono yeah. like, um, uh, is I know how much I'm in need mm. I know how dangerous it is when I, I don't surrender my pain mm. and I don't let my pain become prayer and then I'm no good to nobody and not good to myself and uh, will help hurt myself and others Mm. and uh, I've just come too far for too long to give in now Mm. so I mean you're a part of that your friendship like so thankful to God's timing in how he brought us together other people um uh, my, my my parents and my sister have been phenomenal um, mm. through all of this that um, I will honour others um, and move forward in forgiveness and seek to bless um, and you know so, sometimes it's easier loving your enemies than it is loving your friends yeah like um and that sense of betrayal and that sense of like um, you know, I don't know who said it but it's good advice like love your enemies just in case your friends turn out to be a bunch of bastards mm. and loving your enemies can be a wonderful training ground to to learn to love those closest to you mm. um, that uh, betray you or you betray them or let you down or um, you let them down or um, you know those those very hard things that sometimes it's it's easier to love out there than yeah. it is to do the interpersonal um, stuff hmm. um, but to keep praying for them even though when reconciliation isn't possible and hmm. to keep a, a sweetness of spirit so that God's sweet spirit will, will continue to have room hmm. um, and that won't get clogged up with all the stuff that if I give into, I'm, I'm no good to anyone. Hmm. Um, and I, I stop living out of that love that, that God is and has shown us and is who we really are. Which connects with something I thought wonderful we were talking about with Father John Deere today in terms of the way that nonviolent nonviolence calls us to be First and foremost, we have to be nonviolent with ourselves. When you talk mm. about keep holding on to that tenderness and that sweetness, it's like if yeah. that's if that's lost in yeah. an interior life, if we're not able to be, um, 
gracious and patient with ourselves, then how can we possibly extend that to people around us? To to others, yeah. Um, I've started talking about social tenderness, like because um, lots of talk of social justice. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but what what would a social tenderness look like, and what would that look like in terms of our internal relation? Like as we were walking with John um, in you know, at that beautiful hermitage and like this snow, which is so novel for me. And mm. like, um, there's talk of coyotes and buffalo and yeah. other things that are probably as foreign to me as kangaroos and what right. are to you. Um, <laughs> we're talking about the love makes a way movement and how in terms of uh, my part and what I've hoped to contribute that in our trainings, we've talked about um, how loving um, those that you're going into the protests and who will either um, uh, show opposition or even arrest you, or how do you relate to them as an externalization and an opportunity for therapy for certain parts of yourself? Mm. What are those um, police officer parts of yourself mm. that um, judge and condemn and arrest and? <laughs> Uh, relate and and how do we respond creatively to mm. our inner police officers that want to shut down our our internal campaigns for more compassion mm. um, and how activism can actually be an opportunity to um, here's a little workshop on some archetypes yeah. um, and how important that work is because there is no separation between our what happens in our soul and what happens in society. Mm-hmm. And um, if there are devastating things happening in society, um, unless we have a stronger experience somewhere than that, that'll name us. Mm. And the importance of prayer is letting that be the place and the power that actually names how we respond. Mm. Because otherwise, the power of what we're surrounded by will overpower whatever time we're spending undergoing that mm-hmm. in prayer and so you know the um uh, loving your neighbor as yourself um learning to find ourselves in our neighbor mm. jared as we talk a bit about and i, and I love we've had wonderful conversations the last couple of days i feel like we always do uh, get in some of these ideas in terms of the relationship between prayer and you know contemplation and action and how we relate to ourselves and our own souls and then with the rest of the world. But on that note, I definitely feel like it's worth taking a few moments with. Uh, you've been getting back into trouble again lately. Can you, uh, <laughs> can you tell our listeners a little bit about some of the trouble that you've been making as of late? little bit of Christ-like trouble. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been a busy two weeks. So um, for those who aren't familiar with uh, Australian um, realities, we're our, the Australian government is leading the world in cruelty towards refugees, so much so that Donald Trump has sent people to research our policies mm. because he sees it as a model. Oh, congratulations. Um, wow. So Australians have gone from um, that friendly, humble, funny people that everybody Mm. likes uh, to actually being 
uh, a cruel, mean-hearted, and what's been exposed mm-hmm. as our history of white supremacy and how it now works its way out in our immigration policy. All the same time, while we claim a multicultural society, it's this, it's this strange, mm. strange reality. So one of the things that that happened, um, Australia has a policy of taking people needing safety um, mm. who are referred to as refugees and asylum seekers and locking them offshore. So we have Guantanamos for people seeking safety um, and they're held indefinitely and much like Guantanamo, no one really knows what's going on there. Press aren't allowed to visit, uh, Mm. reporters aren't allowed in and there was one of these particular Guantanamos for people seeking safety, including persecuted Christians who have come to Australia seeking a, a safe future because of the re- places they're coming from, including gay and lesbian people from countries where just because of their orientation, um, they would face the death penalty, mm. including people that are running from war zones, but because of their class or culture or the color of their skin are being persecuted. And these Guantanamos, one of them is called Manus Island, and the government sought to force 600 men in November last year into new centres. And these men said no. What was amazing when I was with the men is that you you would find copies of Martin Luther King's books and Mm. um, Nelson Mandela's uh, Long Walk to Freedom. Mm. And they talked about their five years that they've been in indefinite detention so endless detention when they don't know when they're getting out. Like, if you get a prison sentence, you at least know when you're up for parole yeah. or if you're in for life. This is Their futures are frozen and you wake up every morning wondering, is this going to be the rest of my life? Hmm. Is this, so the amount of mental illness is hmm. chronic. The um, United Nations and Amnesty International have described Australia's immigration policy as mental illness factories Hmm. so just to understand like what's what's actually going on and these men said no we're not going to be silent we're not going to cooperate with us being hidden away out of sight out of mind so australia can pretend like it's managing its borders when what it is actually doing is closing our hearts off from those needing Hmm. asylum needing a safe place and so they turned off the power in the centre they removed all security um, from the centre they stopped all food coming into the centre medical supplies and turned off the water and so when this started happening um, we started praying and uh, there was a group of us who started planning actions and uh, a bunch of pastors and priests uh, we're trying to plan an action and our diaries wouldn't work together because of pastoral responsibilities. But my mate Del and I, we were able to do an action and um, Del uh, is a climber um, mm. he, and I hate heights, but I didn't tell him that until we got down. But off the side of a six-storey building, um, we, uh, we climbed up and unfurled a banner and sat on a... Um, it's it's a portal edge. It's, it's like a, a little tent without a roof that 
hangs from like trees or whatever and we hung off the side of the building with a banner that said uh, SOS Manus and love makes a way for asylum seekers mm. and we were up there until uh, emergency police services uh, had to abseil down and, and take us down so that was our first um, action uh, plan so there were five actions I was involved with um, since they turned off the power, mm. food, electricity, medicine, and the men were surviving by collecting rainwater off the roofs mm. in the centre. Uh, that's what they were bathing in. Local churches in Manus. So Manus is an island to the north of Papua New Guinea, a part of Papua New Guinea, but has, uh, I think it's 26 different languages mm. that are spoken there. The indigenous people there um, uh, have an incredibly rich um, uh, culture and uh, deep Christian spirituality, which is connected to the land. It's it's fascinating and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And Margaret Mead, the anthropologist who's famous for saying, never doubt that a small group of people can change the world. It's the only thing that ever has. Mm-hmm. Um, she actually lived there. She moved there to, to study the cultures. And so as, as well as doing this and while I was out waiting my court day, um, I went to Manus and the same way that um, Ben Doherty from The Guardian and the guy from The New York Times were smuggled in uh, to be with the men, I was smuggled in. Mm. And the local churches are the ones that were smuggling in food, water, medical equipment, and they could risk imprisonment. But these Mm. local people, as the local church leaders described it to us as... um, uh, our culture requires this and Christ demands this. Mm. So they were going to care for the stranger, uh, for, for the immigrant, for the asylum seeker, for the refugee, because Christ is found in the refugee mm. and they took that seriously. So we, we were smuggled in to the centre and we were supposed to spend, spend five hours uh, with the men, uh, Father Dave, who's an Anglican priest, myself, and Olivia Rousseau, uh, who's a photojournalist. She's uh, sorry, a, a videographer and, and journalist. She's actually the um, woman who exposed Abu Ghraib mm, and got all wow. the footage of that. So really highly respected, and she came to document the whole thing. And uh, we were smuggled in successfully at night with the men until about 3 o'clock in the morning. And um, then when we were leaving, some people took some photos on the beach, the flashes tipped off the Navy, and as we were being smuggled uh, back um, from the um, seashore onto these wooden, onto this wooden boat with a two-stroke engine that was going to get us over the reef and, and back out of there, the Navy's spotlights hit us on the beach, on the water, and uh, engine started up. Father Dave was on there already. He, he made it out, but everybody said, go, run, and so we started running through the jungle um, to get away from the Papua New Guinean Navy, knowing that we would have a diplomatic situation between Papua New Guinea and Australia mm. if we were caught. Um, we would be thrown into a Papua New Guinean jail. Uh, that We had heard from church leaders that police officers are from the mainland of Papua New Guinea and that um, a local... Uh, boy had been run over deliberately by the police with no consequences Um, and we're also aware that the Navy had their guns removed from them at Easter last year because they got drunk and fired their weapons into the camp for the asylum seekers Mm. 
and so the kind of danger we were under was was really real mm. but um how much of this story you want no this like, is great please like, um so yeah how was your december like, <laughs> like <laughs> this, this was kind of like my warm-up for this was you know advent for me mm. and and what better way to remember God's future breaking in in Jesus and anticipate God's future in its fullness mm. than to, to welcome it with a bit of Christ-like trouble. Anyway, Olivia mm. and I had to um, uh, run through the jungle. The floodlights from the Navy Navy kept like blinding us. So it's three o'clock in the morning. Everything goes pitch black as the light hits us um, and don't know which way is up and uh, falling in the mud and the mire and I cut my ankle open I didn't feel mm. it at the time just because the adrenaline of yeah. like running what felt like for our lives and then this voice says to me brother give me your hand and I take this large silhouette's hand and he leads me back into the centre and um, uh, Australia's colonial policies to Papua New Guinea who, because we're bullying them with our aid and development mm. um, money, we're making them take our refugees. We, uh, the Australian government, sorry, ha- has ensured that the Navy aren't allowed in the centre. Mm. And so once we were in there, we had some sense of safety. And so I got in there and then the rainwater that they had been collecting, they washed our feet with. Mm. And I mean... <laughs> For me, like, you know, um, and particularly in the churches that, um, where I've, I've pastored, like, foot washing is really central. Yeah. And, and we do it um, when, after people get out of the waters of baptism, mm-hmm. and we hand people a, a, a towel um, after their feet are washed, and we say, no longer with a sword, but with this sign you now conquer, mm. the towel of service. And um, uh, so to have my feet being washed, by these men with their very limited water supplies. Mm. And so somebody's got a mobile phone and is lighting up my feet so they can see and they notice while they're cleaning Olivia and I, my feet, that I'm, there's just blood through the water mm. that I'm bleeding and bleeding. And they're like, come, and they take us to their little makeshift. So these are demountables and it's the tropics. So it's mm. um, the danger of infections, but it's also like so humid mm. and the limited medical supplies, they, they share them with me. So these men were looking for safety, like young Adam, who's a guy who said, brother, take my hand. Mm. He's from Defoe. He mm. He's run from that situation of, of, of genocide to find safety. And my country hasn't given it to him, Jono. And, and here's Adam when he needed safety and a safe place to run and he's helped me as an Australian. Hmm. And where they were coming to Australia and we didn't serve them, but they've washed my feet and served me. Where they were needing medical support and my government cut off all medical supply for these men. Hmm. And they are sharing their limited rations that local poor churches have smuggled in at risk of their own imprisonment hmm. and are treating me. And then we get a text message saying that the people who are trying to smuggle us out is too dangerous with the Navy and that uh, leaving over the reef, they had damaged the propellers. Hmm. And so they couldn't get us until the next night. Wow. So Olivia and I were forced to live with the men for 25 hours. They joked Hmm. that we were the first Australian detainees. 
Hmm. And like for me, I was sleep deprived and like um, my ankles throbbing and all, all the rest. But um, Olivia, it, it sinks in that she's the only woman hmm. and there's over 400 men still left in the camp hmm. and they haven't lived with a woman for over 1,500 plus days. Hmm. And understandably, like, she's filled with panic. Hmm. Handles it phenomenally, amazingly. But she went on to say after the experience, I felt more threatened in a pub in Sydney than I ever felt my whole time there Hmm. in the island. How much detail do you want? Like, because the story is, like, crazy and phenomenal, but I, like, I don't want to... No, this is amazing. Um... It is, it is the closest thing I've ever seen to the Book of Acts. Mm. The, these men, out of desperation, and I asked Baruz and Aziz, who some of your listeners who read the Guardian might have seen. The, these men, um, uh, Aziz, won a Walkie Award for his journalism, uh, mm. reporting what's um, going on there. Uh, Baruz um, is a won a Human Rights Award for um, his reporting. Um, what was going on in Manus. And these men are detainees. They're trapped mm. there, have been for over five years. They're redistributing the food rations so everybody has need. Um, uh, those with mental illnesses, they've put a, a roster together for people to take them round. Mm. And they've welcomed wild dogs into the camp. And they're putting f- rice aside to feed the dogs because they know that the dogs help the men with their mental health because the Australian government has cut off all their um, mental health mm. drugs and and you know y- you live five years I lived there for 25 hours and it started to do a number on me yeah. in terms of my mental health imagine that over one week <sighs> then a month then 12 months mm. then five years mm. and that's what they're living with and yet they were what have these tours of those who are struggling with their mental health, like really struggling mm. to see the birds and to pat the dogs and um, they're redistributing the medical supplies and the water that is coming in and this incredible act of resistance, like the, the greatest examples of non-violence in Australia at the moment are those who aren't being allowed into Australia and are actually in Papua New Guinea, Mm. these phenomenal men. And talking with Aziz and Baruz, asking how did they learn this kind of non-violence, they said, we have tried every kind of protest and it has failed. This has become a university for us. Mm. And we have now graduated and we know that this is the only way we're going to win. Wow. Mm. So we live with them for like, 25 hours and it got that time in the evening when they were like the only way we're going to be able to get you out is this plan we've put together we'll, we'll tell you tomorrow we get word that the plan is so Olivia's got all oh, her camera equi- equipment mm-hmm. something like $22,000 or something worth of mm-hmm. camera equipment um, and how are we going to get that out and the plan is that they can't get the boat in close to shore to rescue us because of the Navy so they're going to have three local men who are deep sea divers, a k and a half off the coast. What are kilometres to miles? I don't know how, um. like, <laughs> how far, um, like a, a serious way off the coast. They're going to jump off a boat 
swim ashore with a large plastic bin container mm. with a seal on it for Olivia's camera equipment and our clothes. And then with them, we're going to have to swim over a kilometre. I'll, I'll look it up so I can translate for um, people how... But it, it was like a 25-minute swim mm. to... Hello, Google. Here it is. This makes for great <laughs> radio journey. Uh, <laughs> Uh, 1.5 km to miles equals so this is swimming yeah in the ocean 0.932 miles wow like it's (sighs) so they swam in and we had to take our clothes off, so I'm standing there in my undies. Uh, Olivia's there in her knickers and bra. It's it's night time, we're putting this stuff into this big thing, the camera equipment goes in, and then we have to start swimming over the reef. I found out later that my friend Shane, who actually worked at the centre and became a whistleblower to expose what was going on mm-hmm. there, their orientation videos included uh, a film that had showed them crocodiles in the beautiful beach that we were swimming in. We didn't Mm. know that at the time, but it's crocodile infested. Mm. And I since found out, since coming back, people were like, I don't have the world's most poisonous sea snake. That's a reality too. So we're swimming over this reef, unaware that that's what's going on. Um, As we're swimming, Olivia puts her foot down on the reef and Liv gets... Uh, a spike through her foot and she doesn't mm. know whether it's a stonefish or like mm. and whether like she's gonna stop breathing in the water Oof. and we've been swimming for for 10 minutes but i mean it's also incredibly beautiful like mm. it's the tropics and every like um stroke you take there are all these fluorescent lights in the water and because mm. there's no light pollution the stars are like phenomenal like it's just mm. a, a, amazing and we're swimming out and we get 20 minutes out past the reef and then the plan is to um, uh, signal with a light and the difference between waterproof and water resistant well English is like their third language and they got it wrong mm. so all the lights that were going to signal the boat that's going to extract us they're uh, not working uh, and so one of the guys finally thinks um, I'll use my lighter pulls out a cigarette lighter that he's been in his pocket starts using it and it lights Mm. they see the light out of nowhere the boat emerges they're just Mm. rowing um, as to not um, pull us aboard um, pull the bucket uh, uh, aboard with the camera equipment and start up the engine and then it's a race to get away from the Navy and and we get out of there Mm. so in conclusion like in terms of what I've been up to uh, that and and that's like a reader's digest yeah and then I got back and I like we need to do something so organised a lock on um, using um, chains around our neck to the equivalent of uh, maybe a bit like our White House it's the residence Mm. of the um, Prime Minister so it's not the office it's Mm -hmm. just the residence um, in Sydney called Kirribilli and so we locked on to the front gates and had international press drawing attention to the reality that the men 
effacing in mass. And, you know, there, there's a little bit about what um, my advent was <laughs> this year. How is that... How has that been received in broader culture there? Like, what's the national? What's the conversation right now around Manus and like? Do you feel like is are things shifting? It, it was huge in the press, and um, like Will Anderson. If people want more details, Will's got one of the most popular podcasts in the world. It's the most popular in Australia. It's called mm. Willosophy, so it's spelled with one L. And Will's a phenomenal comedian, probably one of the most talented comedians uh, Australia has ever produced mm. and nearly was on I think the um, daily st- show with John Stewart yeah. like he just missed out so he's that kind of caliber mm. um, and his podcast had like we did an hour and a half of storytelling around mm. how it's received and the kind of impact that it's had so mm. people are interested um, it was covered by Al Jazeera English International mm. um, uh, so uh, I did this uh, interview with them, New York Times. Mm. Um, uh, the actions themselves have all um, uh, been top trending topics in Australia on uh, social media, and mm. um, yeah, the huge news. Uh, the, the biggest news splash of some of my activism ever, actually. Mm. Um, but we need your prayers like things are dark like here like I I'm here and I'm learning about what the dreamers are going through and driver's licenses being cancelled what does that mean for getting to school Mm -hmm. or getting to work or holding down a job or putting food on the table and I mean the whole thing is just what are we Mm -hmm. who are we becoming yeah like just basic values of human decency i'm not even talking about christianity sure i'm not even talking about following jesus i'm not not talking about that level i'm i'm just talking about being decent like um none of this living god's love kind of stuff i'm just talking Mm -hmm. not being completely horrific to one another like the the simple human empathy Mm. uh, not kind of christ-like compassion that's the next level yeah um you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you is is the golden rule. We'll just go with the silver rule of mm. don't do to others diabolical things that denies their dignity and humanity. Mm. And that's what's happening in your country and mine. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And Absolutely. our countries used to lead the world. Mm. Like the irony that our countries went to World War II to fight fascism, apparently. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the way yeah. that it's talked about. And yet we're allowing fascism to actually grow. Yeah. Like, the the threat of, like, you know, my mum's side of the family were Russian Jews and we said never again after World War Two, and that we wouldn't allow people to experience this and both America and Australia were part mm. of leading the world in international law, writing it in place that people can seek safety. Mm. We are now leading the world and walking away from those who need safety. Yeah. Like... It's we we need revival, and I yeah. really mean that. We need yeah. a revival of personal prayer and tenderness in our own spiritual experience and in our faith communities. Mm. But we need a social revival of social tenderness. Yeah, we need the, the kind of um, neighbourly love um, that calls us to to be better and hold up the best values 
um, that we have been and take seriously King's challenge mm-hmm. like this great American prophet who has so shaped my life but who belongs to this nation mm. that the democratic revolution isn't finished yeah. we've got work to do um, and it's, it's important work and it's work worth suffering for mm. and giving up your life for and losing your job for and downsizing for and having to live more simply for and realising that the upward, upward mobility uh, journey isn't what we're being called to, but yeah. faithfulness to Jesus. And it's not easy, but my goodness, it is joyful and it's the only thing worth wasting your life mm. on. What would you say specifically to those who are in a North American context for him? Because I feel like I'm meeting a lot of these people right now, and I don't say this in a condescending way at all, but people who maybe, you know, because I feel like for as much press as it gets, all the kind of hyper right wing stuff that's happened in American evangelicalism, that's true and it's disturbing. But I feel like just as pronounced, if not more so, is like a lot of evangelicals in the States for a long time have just sort of been almost militant centrist you know the we believe that you know that jesus is lord and what you say about jesus is all that matters and squeamish to touch politics you actually feel like it's that sort of very apolitical tendency that's given rise for a lot of what's happening right now more than the radical voices you know is this idea that like uh just what we believe about jesus is not necessarily connected with how we're living in the world at all and i'm just specifically for people who like for whom these ideas are new. I feel like I'm talking to so many people who are waking up and they don't feel like that this direction run is right and they want to get involved, but you know, they've never taken a course in, in King and it's right now it's still a little bit intuitive and scary. Like mm. what would you say to people who like, like they, they want, they want to get involved. They want to do something in the world that matters. They love Jesus, but just, but don't know where to begin. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll get to my, Dave Andrews, and he talks about one can make a point, two can have a conversation, but three, three can create a space. Hmm. And that whole thing of where two or three are gathered, if people are listening and going, I feel so isolated, find one or two. Hmm. Where where two or three are gathered, God promises to show up, and there's something Hmm. about creating little spaces of sanity where mm-hmm. we can have sane conversations mm-hmm. about real human compassion and and talk about um, it is wonderful that people are saying Jesus Lord. That's mm-hmm. the gospel. Yeah. But we've got to work out what it means in, in terms of our own lives. Mm-hmm. And it certainly means living God's love. Mm-hmm. And they're not popular terms. They're, they're not seeker-friendly terms, but... The gospel is just littered with calls to repentance. Mm. And we don't talk like that because we think it might affect what goes in the collection plate. But yeah. We need to. Yeah. Um, I need to be called to repentance. Mm. We need to talk about obedience. I mean, we are talking right at the start about the, the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, to obey all these things that I've commanded. There's 15. Mm. They're imperatives in the Greek. Um, contact me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. I'll, I'll send you uh, a summarized form of all 15 and a Bible mm. study on them. That's but great. Find two or three and create a little space and dedicate your lives to living out 
of our baptism into the Trinitarian reality of mm. the God who is love, mm. to obey what he commands us so we participate in that love mm. and realize that God's presence is with us. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Like an LP, each episode is divided into side A and side B. Side A could be a sermon, a conversation with a guest, but will always introduce some idea. Side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music, question answering with listeners, or quirky rabbit trails off of side A for people who want the deep cuts, not just the singles. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.